0: Take your Bible, if you will, and open up with me to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to finish this chapter this morning. I'm just speaking to the simple subject of spiritual maturity. Coming out of what we looked at last Sunday, talking about what is the spiritual life, now we're going to see how to grow that spiritual life. Uh, You've probably heard a statement either said about someone else, but more than likely, I bet it was said about you or something similar. Here's the statement. You need to grow up. You ever hear that from your, your parents? You just need to grow up. How'd that make you feel? Probably made you want to slap somebody, right? Who dare, how, how dare you tell me that I need to grow up? Well, the truth is, we all need to hear that statement because that statement is true in a lot of ways. And so we need to grow up. But growing up is normal. I want you to think with me for just a moment. It doesn't matter what creature it is in God's creation, growing up is a part of the plan. You take the lion, it moves up from a cub to The lion or lioness, you take a cow, it begins as a calf and it turns into a heifer or I guess a cow or a bull. I'm not much of a farmer. (laughs) Apparently, I'm not much of a farmer. Uh, I I am a hunter, so you take that deer. What is it? It's a fawn and we're about to see some of those little critters running around with all their spots. If you haven't seen them already, they'll be here soon. But that little guy is going to grow up to something that's absolutely beautiful and even better on the wall of a person's office. All my anti-hunters just tuned me out, but uh, I'm just having dominion. Growing is a part of the process. Growing is expected. It's normal. It's what is supposed to happen. Things are supposed to grow from infancy into adulthood, from a state of helplessness to a state of helping. being. Uh, we're watching right now i think last spring i probably used the same illustration talking about something but uh, right now all the birds that are nesting in your yards and around your stuff have little babies that are getting ready to leave the nest i walk out to where i a lot of times park my truck when it's not in the garage and a couple of years ago i put a couple bird houses up there and they didn't use them like they they set vacant for two to three years but this spring One of them's been occupied by a little bluebird. And so I walk out the other day, and there are four birds that thought it was time to jump from the nest. And so they're trying to get around on the ground, trying to flap their wings and take flight. And so we're getting to that point. So birds and other creatures move from helplessness into a state of helping, and the mama bird brings the worm to the babies. That is normal. That is expected. That is what is needed. And so maturity is normal. It's been said about maturity that it proceeds through four stages. Here's the four stages. Help me, tell me, show me, and follow me. Those are the four stages of maturity. The objective in those four stages is to not get stuck. It's to finish them. It's to get to the place where you're saying, follow me. You're the helper, not the one who's being helped. We don't want to get stuck in one of the stages. At the same time, you cannot jump stages, right? You've got to go through the stages of maturity. I want you to think with me for just a moment. And then this picture of jumping stages, you've all, maybe you haven't seen it, but you can actually picture this: the six foot ten, 13-year-old who's in eighth grade. Right? You've seen a kid, maybe not six ten, but he's way beyond where that kid should be from a growth standpoint. And if you see a six foot 8th grader, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Basketball. You got to get on UVA's radar so that they can get you, or you techers, on UVA or Virginia Tech or VCU's radar because surely you need to be playing basketball. And rightly so, you would think. Height makes sense. This is a basketball player. And you would think that this person can play at a very good level. Here's what you wouldn't do with a 13-year-old who's six foot ten. You're not going to put them on the court with an Anthony Davis or a Zion Williamson, two of the best power forwards in the game. You're not going to put them on the court. Why? Well, they have the height, but they don't have the discipline. They don't have the experience. They don't have the resolve. They don't have the bulkiness. They don't have the maturity to be on the court with a seasoned player. They just have height going for them. So maturity is needed. We need to grow into our bodies. we got to fulfill and complete the cycles of maturity it's something we should expect it's something something that we should desire this reality is true in all aspects of life especially when it comes to our spiritual life we're expected to grow last week as we were in the first 11 verses of this chapter we saw there that paul is presenting this picture of the spiritual life and he's talking about himself He's using himself as an example. And he's showing us here that we're all called, all expected, all drawn into a relationship with the God who created us for himself. And Paul talks about how we don't get to that relationship, we don't experience that life through things that we do, or pedigrees, or education, or where we were born, or any of those things. It comes through a personal relationship with Jesus. And so he talks about how he's a Pharisee of Pharisee, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, he's got this great pedigree, he's got this great education, he comes from the right side of the tracks, but he says all of this is rubbish. I count it as a loss in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ, not about knowing about the Lord, but personally knowing him, intimately knowing him in a relationship. That's what Paul lays out in these first 11 verses of chapter three, verses 12 through 21, as we're going to read in just a minute, you're going to see that he's going to flesh out, uses his life as an example again, what that looks like now that you're in relationship, how you're supposed to mature, move through the process, move through the phases into a fully developed follower of Jesus Christ. We're going to see here this morning that this spiritual maturity involves going deeper in the gospel, but never going beyond the gospel. Look with me what Paul has to say here, beginning in verse 12. Not that I've already attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. As we read through this letter to the Philippians, what we've seen here is there's an ongoing theme of emulation. Paul's talking over and over again about examples He's showing examples of how you're to live, what that Christian life ought to look like, and who to follow. For instance, in chapter one, we see there that the church in Rome was encouraged and emboldened to preach the gospel and to live out their faith. Why? Because they saw Paul doing that. They knew that Paul was there in Rome under arrest, awaiting a final trial, the verdict to come down on whether or not he was going to live or die. They saw his faithfulness, and were encouraged. They were emboldened. They were courageously willing to put their lives on the line for the sake of the gospel because they saw Paul doing just that. In chapter 2, Christ is held up as the ultimate example of humility and servanthood. And then Paul lays out two men, Timothy and Epaphroditus, as light shining in a dark world. These great examples of how to live the Christian life. As we move into chapter 3, we see that Paul presented himself as this model of the spiritual life. He regarded all of his earthly uh, accomplishments, all of his religious accomplishments, as nothing compared to knowing Jesus. Then in addition to the spiritual life, Paul now is going to use his life to show what it means to and what it looks like to walk with the Lord to illustrate spiritual maturity. Question for you. Can we agree that spiritual maturity is necessary? Can I give this an affirmation, right? All right. So you would expect spiritual maturity from believers, right? You would expect spiritual maturity from your children, just physical, right? Who wants your child to stay in diapers? The day that we didn't have to change a diaper was the glorious, very glorious day in our home. Glorious day. And more money was back in my pocket. That's what made it Glorious. We want our kids to grow. We expect things to mature. We should expect our personal lives with the Lord, our personal walk to mature. We should expect those around us in their walk with Christ to mature. And yet, sadly, the reality is some people never seem to grow up. And we, we live in a culture today where people are not growing up. They have facial hair. They may even be losing their hair, but they're still living at home. 35-year-old dude still living in mama's basement. There's something wrong with that. Wow, that must have touched somebody's nerve because nobody said anything. <laughs> we live in a culture that, that seems to coddle a little bit more than previous cultures. That's not the point of the message. That's for free this morning. But spiritual maturity is something we should expect. So we don't see maturity happening all the time in culture. We also don't see maturity happening all the time in the church. I can't tell you the number of times that that I've come in contact with people that would profess to know Jesus. They may be older. They may be gray-haired. They may have walked with the Lord for decades, many times longer than I have, and yet they seem to be so infantile in their understanding of the Word of God and their walk with Jesus. So they may grow old, they may have gray hair, they may have wrinkles, and yet they are nothing more than an immature believer. Here's a statement I came across this week. Many a woman has a teenage husband, and a long-suffering man has a child bride with wrinkles. It's pretty sad. The same is true in the church. Paul here calls us to spiritual maturity. Let's look at what that has what he has to say here in these verses i want to lay it out in two major points you've got your outline there in your bulletin two major thoughts and then four sub points for the first one three for the second one i promise we'll be out before lunch the mindset of maturing that's what i want us to look at first the mindset of the maturing what is the thought pattern for one who would seek to walk with the lord and grow in that relationship. Well, the illustration Paul here uses to present this mindset is that of an athlete. I love the fact that he uses this picture because I can relate to it so well. I love sports. I watch sports all the time. I enjoy playing sports. And so Paul's going to use this picture of an athlete as he talks about the mindset of the maturing believer. Now, scholars debate as to which race Paul is alluding to is he pictures this athlete. Is it the foot race where maybe it's the the Olympic run, the marathon that we would call it, or is it a chariot race? We don't really know. It's really something that scholars um, do in their spare time of debating things that really don't matter. But if it is the chariot race, and Warren Wearsby makes a pretty good case that that's probably the case here, and the reason he points it out is because the Greek chariot, which would have been used in many of these games, was nothing more than a small platform with wheels on each side, so there was not much for the charioteer to hold on to other than the reins, and basically he's surfing on the board behind a couple horses. Sounds like a lot of fun. And so the language he uses here, the verb he uses here, speaks of, it's translated straining forward there in verse 13, speaks of this, maybe this charioteer who's straining forward with nerves and muscles all tense to stay on the platform and control the horses. That's the picture, that's the image that Paul is speaking of. So he's straining forward, he's pressing on toward the goal for the prize, he says. So what's the goal? The goal was spiritual maturity. It's maturing in Christ. It was a life that pleased and brought glory to the Savior. That's the goal that Paul is straining forward toward. It's a life that pleases the Lord. It's not a spiritual life. It's not a relationship with Jesus. Paul's not saying, I'm straining forward, I'm pressing on so that I can experience this spiritual life. No, he's already had the spiritual life. He's in relationship with Jesus. So if you were to use these games, the only people who could compete in the games were citizens of Rome. So they've already got their license to be in the games. Paul already has his license to be in the race. So he's not straining for that. He's straining to progress in this walk, in this relationship, in this feat with the Lord. So let me share with you four components involved in this mindset of the maturing. First thing is this. The mindset recognizes there is room for growth. Recognizes there is room for the growth. Now, last week in in verse 2, we learned who Paul was speaking of here as he talks about dogs and evildoers. You remember? They're the Judaizers. Who are the Judaizers? These were Jewish people who believed that messiah was coming they actually would have acknowledged that jesus is the messiah but they want to connect jesus to the old testament law and the keeping of the law so that you had to in order to become a follower of jesus you had to first become a jew practice the jewish ceremonial law and then add jesus to it and paul and the apostles and the early church rejected that in acts chapter 15 as an as a heresy And so that's who these uh, dogs and evildoers were. But along with the Judaizers, possibly even among the Judaizers, there were also some false teachers there in Philippi who had adopted a perfectionistic view of spirituality. In other words, these people believe that if you walk with Jesus long enough, you can actually become sinless. Sinless perfectionism. There's still some some of that heresy around today. It's always been around, probably always will be around. But Paul rejects that just as he rejects the other heresy. Uh, The fact that Paul here counted everything as lost for the sake of Christ does not mean that he arrived spiritually. He was not sinless himself. Now, I don't know personally, or not, I shouldn't say personally, I don't remember if there's anything in the New Testament that would show a sin in the life of Paul, but we do know this. Him and Barnabas butted heads pretty significantly so much so that they parted ways uh they parted they butted heads over the john over john mark and his desire to come back on the team paul's like no he's a quitter he's not coming with me barnabas the man of encouragement says i will take him and they went in different directions so i don't think paul was sinless i think he was just like you and i i don't want this quitter on my team and so he was a little rude right So Paul rejected. He knew he's not sinless. And the Bible doesn't teach this sort of of doctrine. Uh, What Paul did do was each day committed himself to straining forward in maturity. So there's no stagnation in his walk with Christ. Before his experience outside of Damascus, moving into Acts chapter 9, when he met Jesus there on the road, if you were to ask Paul, do you think you've met uh, spiritual perfection, he might not have said yes, but I think he would have probably said, I'm this close. Look how zealous I am. Look how passionate I am. Look what I'm doing as unto the Lord. I am persecuting the church. I am there at the stoning of Stephen. I am close to everything that would bring God glory. But if you ask Paul that here as he's writing this letter to the Philippians, he would have said, absolutely not. I am the chief of sinners. He never thought he had arrived spiritually. There was always room for growth in his life. And for this reason, Paul says, I press on, verse 12. He's never willing to be satisfied with yesterday's grace nor with yesterday's achievements. Yeah, he was satisfied with Jesus, and praise God, he was satisfied with Jesus, but he was never content with his Christian life. When you think about discontentment, it can be extremely dangerous, and in most situations, discontentment ought to be avoided. What does discontentment do for us? It's what leads a man or a woman to find, uh, s- find relationship, friendship, whatever they're seeking, whatever they're lacking, they find it in someone else other than their spouse. Discontentment is what leads a person to, to find what they're missing in alcohol or drugs or some other addiction. Discontentment leads a person to debt. Right, We're discontented, so we think that the, the acquisition of possessions will bring what's missing in our lives, and so we will go in debt for those things. Discontentment, Matt Brunson said, I was listening to his sermon this week from last Sunday, and he made this statement. He says, discontentment can be extremely dangerous. <clears throat> in fact, it's the gateway to a lot of sin in a believer's life. Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So whatever has got your heart is where your treasure is going to be. It's where your focus is going to be. So we want to make sure our treasure is in the right place. That's the negative discontentment. It's rooted in misplaced affections and desires. But there's a flip side. There's a positive side to discontentment. I believe what Paul's here is expressing is he's expressing a positive side to discontentment. He's not content where he is spiritually. He doesn't want to rest on yesterday's achievements. He doesn't want to rest in yesterday's experience with the Lord. He doesn't want to to just kind of set back and coast through life. He wants to push on, to press on, to strain forward, to achieve and to, uh, to acquire all that the Lord... Would have for him. Discontentment will drive a person to grow and improve and innovate. It, it, when it comes to a believer in a church's walk with the Lord, here's a good statement a sanctified dissatisfaction is essential for progress in the Christian life. Believers, we need to do a self assessment of ourselves regularly. We need to regularly look in with introspection and just ask the question where am I at with the Lord? What's my life look like? What's my walk look like? Am I coasting? Am I walking into guilty distance? Or am I walking in step with the Lord Jesus? Paul understood, and we who are maturing should understand, understand there's room for growth in our lives. There's a second component to this mindset, and that is it works toward growth. So if we know there's room for growth, what do we do? We work toward it. Now I gotta, pick up my game here and hurry up, because we got a long ways to go here and just a few minutes to, to get there. Works toward growth. Paul says there in the latter part of verse 12, I press on to make it my own. I press on to make it my own. He's reaching out and grabbing it. So identifying with the reality of one's inadequacy, th- think about it, that's not difficult for us. If you were asked the question this morning, are you really where you need to be, really where you want to be with the Lord, or really any area of your life, you could probably pretty easily say, you know what, I'm I'm deficient in this area. I really wish this could change or that could change. We can identify the inadequacies, the, the failures that we have. Unfortunately, what too many people do, even spiritually, is they will use that as an excuse to become complacent. They will just simply passively throw up their hands and say, well, it's kind of where I'm at. It's the lot I have in life. And and just there begin to coast and passively let life pass them by. That's not so with Paul. He says he presses on. The verb here can also be translated as pursue. It can also be translated as persecute. Think about those two words. He says, I press on, same word, dioko, is it, it, translated pursue and persecute. Can you do those two things passively? Can you pursue someone passively? No. You, you get in the vehicle and you're tracking behind them, it's an action verb. Can you pers- persecute somebody passively? No, it's ongoing action. You have to do something to persecute another. That's what Paul is saying here. I press on, I reach out and grab hold of this and make it my own. So Paul here makes it clear to the Philippians that he's actively working toward growth. He was not wishing growth would take place. He was not hoping to fall into maturity. Many times in the Christian life, we, that, that's our approach. We wish that we could grow this year. Man, I, I, I wish in 2021 my spiritual life would be the greatest it's ever been. I hope in 2022 that, that things would be different, but, but you just kind of passively allow things to just come and go as they please rather than going out and making things happen. Paul was committed to making things happen. You see, spiritual maturity does not happen by accident. You will never gravitate towards spiritual maturity, you will never gravitate, you will instead gravitate toward immaturity. Think about that for a second. You will never just passively fall into a great walk with the Lord. You have to intentionally decide it's time. In fact, he even says one thing. And then he talks about forgetting what lies. behind. we're going to get that through in a second, but one thing. So many times it's just i got to decide one thing right now. I'm gonna cut this out. I'm gonna change this in my life. And that's your action to press on, to strain forward, to begin to change the trajectory of your spiritual walk with the Lord from immaturity into maturity, deciding to move forward. You don't fall into godliness, you fall into worldliness. So, the mindset of the maturing works the problem and actively moves toward growth. There's a third component here, and that is the mindset holds loosely the things of the past. So, verse 13, uh, like I said, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Again, here, Paul knows that he has not arrived or obtained perfection. He is, however, Actively pursuing Christ, pursuing sanctification. And in this pursuit, he understands the importance of holding things loosely. You say what things? Anything. Paul's not going to hold the, the the good things in his past, great achievements, tightly and say, man, I am I, I, that's that's the heel, that's the apex of my life. I'm dropping the mic and walking out. This is the, the, the final best thing in my life. He's never gonna do that. He holds it loosely, because that was yesterday. Nor is he going to hold firmly the failures of the past, thinking, man, I blundered there. I made a mess of my life. I, I dishonored the Lord. That is horrible. It can never be forgiven. He knows that everything is forgivable under the Lord. He's gracious and kind and merciful. So for us, we learn here from Paul that our past does not determine our futures, good or bad. You could have great days in the past with the Lord walking, but that doesn't mean you're going to have great days in the future. Because the minute you begin to take your eye off the goal, off the the finish line of the race of life, you begin to lose. And the failures, failures you have in the past as well don't determine your future. Just because you've made a huge blunder doesn't mean you can't, from this moment on, walk faithfully with the Lord to the end of your days. Man, I've seen men in my 20 years or so of ministry come in and sit in my office or we meet for coffee or something and and they talk about the failures they've made as a husband and as a father and, and how they're, 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 they're messing around with another woman or whatever. And, and we talk through what all that's happening. And, and I've had them sit there and say, exactly, this is what's wrong with my life. This is what I need to do. I need to walk out of this sin. And they will choose to continue in that sin because I think they're so overwhelmed by their past and their failures, they can't look forward to see that God can forgive, cleanse, and restore. So the past continues to determine the future. we got to cut that out and allow each day to be its own. There's a fourth thing i got to move here. The mindset of the maturing focuses on the goal. The athlete competing in the race is conscious of his surroundings. We see this picture here. I mean, think about a race. The racer even knows what's behind him. Here's what the racer doesn't do. Never looks behind and focuses on what's behind because as soon as you begin to look over your shoulder as a runner, you begin to lose momentum and speed. You may even trip yourself up and be out of the race altogether. So you're aware of what's happening. You know what's in the past. Paul's not telling us here to absolutely forget everything in the past. You can't do that. And the Bible talks about how the Lord remembers our sin no more. I don't believe that's saying that God in his infinite sovereignty and knowledge doesn't remember. The idea is he doesn't hold it against you. And so we know what's in our past, good or bad. We just hold those things loosely as we fix our eyes on the goal and the prize of moving on in maturity to the Lord. And we are aware of those surroundings, but we're not fixed on those surroundings so that we continue to run faithfully, forcefully and wonderfully for the Lord. So he talks about how he presses on toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is all that about? It's attaining Christ's likeness. See, the goal is the believer's life being perfectly conformed to that of the Lord's. Paul's not advocating, again, a spiritual perfectionism. Nowhere in Scripture do we see that idea advocated. It clearly describes the ongoing battle Christians fight with the flesh. That's what we see in the Bible. So Scripture does not present the picture that Christians should be winning, or it does present that Christians should be winning the fight. There's a fight every day. We should not be losing. We should be winning the fight. There ought to be spiritual progress, spiritual maturity taking place. So again, there ought to be an ongoing spiritual assessment in your life. Is there progress? If there's no progress, something's wrong. If your child is not progressing up physically, what do you do? You go to the doctor. You try to figure out what's going on. Is there a nutrition uh, issue here? Is there a genetic issue? What, what is the thing? Because my 15-year-old should be at this stage based upon what other kids experience. And so we want to know what the issue is. But why is it in our spiritual walk with Jesus, we don't, when we see that there's, well, maybe we don't even see because we don't pay attention, but if we were to notice, hey, I've walked with the Lord 10 years now, why am I no more than an infant spiritually? Why am I still drinking spiritual milk rather than feasting on spiritual food? Why have I not grown to where some other believers are in their walk with the Lord? What's the issue, right? We want to mature. The goal is maturity. Uh, To live a life that's progressively being made into the image of Christ so that we can shine as lights in a dark world. And then with that, we know, thankfully, that God will reward us. And bless us. There's a prize. There's a crown for those who are faithful. So these verses present the mindset or the thought pattern of those who are walking in maturity. Now let's look at the description of what that looks like. So the perspective of the maturing. It's important for athletes to develop a perspective for how they view the way they live. Um, here's what athletes do. They will pay attention to what other people are doing. Um, If you're at the gym and you're lifting or whatever you're doing at the gym and you see someone else who seems to be a little bit further down the road, I I know you're peeking over there. I know you want to see their workout plan. You want to know what they're eating, what they're not eating. You want to catch uh, some tips here. Why? You want to get an edge. I do it all the time. I steal from people all the time in the gym. If they're further down the road than I am, sometimes I'll even steal something from someone else. If it's something I haven't been able to learn or incorporate into my own regiment. And so that's what an athlete does. They want to get an edge in their performance. So there should be no difference for Christians who are seeking to mature in their walk with Christ. Let me give you three aspects of this perspective. First of all, the perspective of the maturing watches and follows those whose minds are set on heaven. You see, whom you follow and hang out with matters. Paul said, bad company corrupts good morals. So it matters who you hang out with. So right now we're going to look at the positive influences. The second perspective is going to be more focused on the negative influences and what to do there. But look at verse 17. Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Then verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. You know, I've said this many times. Orthodoxy is important, but so is orthopraxy. Here's what I mean by that. You need right teaching, but you also need right living. You need to know good doctrine, but you need good examples. And you need to be a good example. So that's what Paul is talking about here. The, the, the perspective of those who are seeking and mature in the Christ are watching and following those whose minds are set on heaven, not on the things of this world. So there are some things that are more easily caught than taught. And we know that. But even in those things that can be taught pretty easily, it's always helpful to see an example. So Paul here calls on the Philippians to imitate the example that they see in him, but not just him, on other maturing believers as well, to follow their example. So if there's ever been a day in which we need good and faithful examples to follow, can we say it's today? We need good examples to follow. Why is that? Because we live in a culture filled with broken marriages here's where our kids are growing up in what they're growing up in our kids are growing up in a culture where it is becoming more common for their friends to come from a broken home than from a traditional two-parent home and even sometimes when they're a two-parent home it's two gen- two of the same genders So we're living in a world that is completely broken. So how can our kids know what a biblical, faithful marriage looks like if they don't see an example of it? We need an example of that. So we need to see good examples. We also live in a culture with gender confusion and misplaced affections. This world is not focused on the things of heaven. And everything in culture is working against us. So we need to find faithful examples and watch them. We need to look out and find those who are not living for lesser things, but instead their minds are set on heaven. Here's what we need to do. If you're a younger couple, maybe you've been married just for a few years, you need to find another godly couple who's walked a few more years in this thing called marriage than you and attach yourselves to their hips. Learn. Because here is what every person who's been married for any length of time knows. It's not a cakewalk. I can't tell you how many times my wife has abused me. <laughs> I've abused her, more likely. It's not easy. You think, well, you're a pastor, and your wife's a pastor's wife. Things are wonderful for your house. probably makes it harder, right, Jan? You guys know. You guys know. It's not easy. So what do you do? You, t- you find somebody, and you learn from them. If you want to grow in in your understanding of the word of God, put yourself under those who study the word and teach the word and, and let them show you and model for you what that looks like. If you want to grow in prayer, be around those who pray. If you want to learn how to give, be with those who give. If you want to know how to serve, be with those who serve learn from others, watch and find those people who have their eyes fixed on heavenly things, not on earthly things, and learn from them, imitate them and their walk with Jesus. There's a second perspective, and that is, this perspective identifies and rejects those whose minds are set on earthly things. Verse 18, for many of whom... For many, of whom I have often told you, now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. In these two verses, we learn that some people in the church are not setting the right example. You read those and you think, well, he's surely talking about worldly people. No, he's talking about people whose names are on the roll. Did you know that just because you attend church, or you've been baptized, or you give, or you serve, or whatever a label you want to put on your Christian life doesn't mean you're a citizen of heaven? You do know that, right? So that's who he's talking about here. Now, there are some other people who had some, uh, he talks about them in chapter 1, who had some messed up priorities and perspectives, but they were true believers. They, they were preaching the gospel. Uh, they were just a little bit jealous of Paul. Those are not the people he's talking about here. The people in these two verses, these are people who claim to know Jesus, but everything in their life says otherwise. They live for the appetites of their belly. They live for the lustful indulgences of their flesh. Their minds and their focus is on earthly things. He says, identify those and reject them. Why? Because they're enemies of the cross. They're going to lead you astray. The spiritual maturing believer must be able to identify and reject these type of charlatans. And this brings us to a third and final aspect. And that is, lives with an expectation that others can and will follow one's example. The perspective of the maturing lives with a With an expectation that others can and will follow your example. Question. How comfortable would you be if you were to call on others and do what Paul does in verse 17 and say, imitate me? How comfortable would that make you to walk up to a brother who's, let's just put it in marriage context because I mentioned that earlier, you, you somehow God puts you sovereignly in, in a in a connection with a struggling married couple. And you just say, hey, we love you. We want to help you. We, we want to do whatever's necessary. We've been married 20 years, and we've had ups and downs and rocky roads and, and, and all of that. But God has been faithful, and we, by the best way we could, have stayed true to the Lord and stayed true to one another and We want to come alongside of you. We want you to learn from us. How comfortable would that make you? Most of the time, we push back from that. We don't want to be a part of that because we, I think we hold too tightly to the past and we fear that we haven't arrived, but the truth is you've never arrived. We're all in a progress or a process of growth, process of maturity. We're all becoming more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. Paul's in the same boat. I mean, he looks at his own spiritual life and other places He says, I am the chief of sinners. He did not have this perspective of, I am the godliest person on the face of the earth. If you want to know what Jesus looks like, look at me. Paul would have never said that. And yet he says to the church, imitate me. Follow me. Learn from me. Attach yourself to me and follow my life, my pursuit of Jesus and you will grow. That's where we need to be as a follower of Jesus. Willing to invest ourselves in others and say I don't have everything figured out and I am a mess more than I'm not. But follow me. Learn from me. Grow with me. We are, we've we were doing this organically um, up until COVID stuff, uh, but d- discipleship groups here in our church. And I think I mentioned a couple Sundays ago or something like that, that we want to see 40 people in our next church year go through a discipleship group. So what is that? Well, it's, they're gender specific. There are about three to five individuals in a group, and it's not necessarily a teacher with pupils, but it's us learning together sort of concept, Right. And so, what that D group is about is we're reading Scripture, we're praying together, we're 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 encouraging one another in the faith, we're holding one another accountable. It's all of that encompassed in this commitment for a series of months, so that we can walk and grow in the Lord together. That's what we need to see. And then, the goal in that is when you complete. You go and do likewise. So if you've got five people in that D group, uh, and, and you go through that period of time, and you grow together, now those five go and start their own discipleship groups, and you've got 25 people being discipled. And then you've got whatever comes after that exponentially. I'm not a math whiz. I didn't plan to do that. I would have ran the math out. But you've got a lot. Live with an expectation that others can and will follow your example. How do you do that? You got your eyes set on heaven. I came across this epitaph in D.A. Carson's commentary this week. Uh, he said, um, May we live in such a way that our epitaph could read like this Of this blessed man, let this praise be given. Heaven was in him before he was in heaven. Man, that's a good word. I'm going to do a funeral tomorrow for one of our oldest, longtime members, Miss Eva Gregory. I don't know what her epitaph's going to be, and I didn't know her very well. But what if it's your funeral, and people are gathering to celebrate your life and what the Lord's done in your life? I can't think of something better to be said about your life, that heaven was in you before you were in heaven. Man, that's a good word. And then when heaven's in you, you know who wants to follow you? Everybody else, because you're a shining light in a dark world, spiritual maturity. Truth is, people are watching. They take notice of how you live your Christian life. We shouldn't let that scare us, but instead we should embrace it. We should live in such a way that others can see Jesus in us. We don't want to hide our failures. We want to learn and grow from them. We want to put ourselves around and under those who can help and foster that growth in the Lord. We want to reject those who would lead us astray or the things that would lead us astray. And then we want to strive to be a spiritual guide so that other believers who've not traveled as far with Jesus can come alongside. That's what we want to do in our spiritual maturity. This morning, you need to grow up. You need to grow up. And I don't say that meanly. I don't say that um, flippantly even. You need to grow up. Whatever stage you are in your walk with Jesus, you need to continue to grow up. Maturity is expected. It is desired. How strange would it be to see a 30-year-old man still sucking on a bottle? That's actually not just strange. It's wrong. And yet, so many Christians today, 30 years with the Lord, still sucking on a bottle. 50 years with the Lord, still sucking on a bottle. You need to grow up. How do you do that? It begins with a relationship with Jesus, right? The spiritual life. Today, if you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, and you'd say, the only thing I've got is religion, and maybe you don't even have that. Today could be the day of salvation for you. What does it mean? It means you understand you're a sinner. You understand the brokenness that sin has created in your life, the separation it's made between you and your God. You understand that you can't fix that brokenness. No matter what you do, no matter what you put in your body or what you take out of your body, you cannot fix the brokenness. Only God can do that. And he's done it through his son, Jesus Christ, who came to pay your debt so that you could be forgiven. The Bible tells us he was crucified on a cross, buried in a grave, three days later rose from the dead so that you could be forgiven. He was the sacrifice that atoned for the judgment of God against sin. And all you have to do is say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner I believe you. I trust you. Forgive me of my sin and become the Lord and Savior of my life. That's all you have to do. And God will change you just like that. And then you're on the road to spiritual maturity. You don't want to stay there. You don't want to stay there at the foot of the cross and, 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 and receiving salvation. Now you want to live at the foot of the cross Remember it never goes to be on the gospel, but you want to live at the foot of the cross and grow in this new walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. And you do that through reading his word, spending time in prayer, being around other believers, growing together. That's what the church is all about. I believe that's why the writer of Hebrews is so passionate and emphatic in Hebrews ten twenty five that we not forsake the assembling of the brethren. It's important that we're with the body of Christ. So it's time to grow up. Here's a question How you doing? How are you doing in your walk with the Lord? Do you need a walk? Do you need to grow in that walk? Let's pray. Father, thank you.